When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Over Under Movies, where we pick one overrated and one underrated movie within the same style, theme, story, uh, genre, or however we see fit. This is Octavia Kozak. I'm Eric McClanahan. And I'm Ryan Oliver. As usual, uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Playlist Podcast Network, which also holds within its ranks the, the, the Playlist Podcast with a bunch of different issues and uh, subjects that uh, we go into and also adjust your tracking uh, co-hosted by Eric McClanahan uh, our co-host here and um, yeah uh, we have our podcast on the playlist.net you can find us on our iTunes feed as well and uh, Stitcher and a whole bunch of other places so um, yeah keep an eye out for that but uh, for today we are going into Ryan's picks, which I would uh, describe as uh, John Goodman loves movies, <laughs> because uh, because one of our favorite actors, uh, John, John Goodman, is in uh, both of these films, and also you know they're they're films that are kind of linked towards this idea of a uh, film that's kind of a love letter for movies. Uh, both films are kind of like that. Um, so our so Ryan's underrated pick is. Joe Dante's 1993 film Matinee, uh, which stars John Goodman as a William Castle type who brings a uh, kind of a B-monster movie with a bunch of uh, showmanship uh, stuff like buzzers in the seats and, and to like into a little uh, Florida town that is right next to right at the edge of the Cuban Missile Crisis at the early 60s. And the uh, the overrated pick is the 2011 Best Picture Oscar winner, uh, The Artist. The black and white silent... Uh, French film, which I mean, it happens to take place in Hollywood, and during the switch to the uh, the talkies, but it is a French film, uh, and um, that might be the fastest forgotten Best Picture winner as far as like a fall from uh, <laughs> uh, popular culture consciousness. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll get into that as well. But uh, you know, we're just going to talk about both these films within the same episode. We're not going to uh, split them up that like like we used to. But let's just start off with the artist, uh, Ryan. Why'd you pick the artist as overrated? I've talked a lot about on this show about how uh, nostalgia is becoming an, like an increasing problem among uh, not just people of our generation, but I think in general, people are just like overly nostalgic for something that they don't see a lot anymore and and i i think we all fall into that category from time to time but this this is the the epitome of to me of like 
two step backwards, one step forward. Like I, I don't, this is a movie that I, I think is, it's breezy and entertaining. At least it was the first time I saw it. I, I don't think it deserved to win best picture by any stretch of the word, but I was like, Oh, that was, that was cute. It was a puff piece. You know, it was, it was kind of entertaining, but watching it the second time, it's like, I don't like to put a lot of emphasis on the Oscars. I mean, I think it should just kind of stand as a film, but even as a film, it's just kind of, it's, it's overly melodramatic. It's mostly just not interesting. I'd, I'd even go as far to say that I actively like dislike the first 30 minutes of this movie. Um, especially in hindsight of Jean Dujardin winning the best actor Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm just like, he in the first half hour, it's like you went to the Roberto Benini school of like mugging for the camera. And it's mm-hmm. just like so grating and uh, frustrating. And it gets a little bit more interesting, but I think like what, what links these two uh, together for me and why I picked one for over and one for under just simply not enjoying this movie as much a second time but it's 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 all in context and it's all about what each movie tries to say and um you know i want to hear what you guys think about the artist before we move into matinee but i just think that matinee is a film this idea of um having like a timeless feel to it but also addressing the constant changing within the industry and sort of like moving with the times like i feel like that movie is very poignant where this movie is like really stuck in the past and it isn't really about sort of moving forward. It's sort of just sort of lamenting the past where um, I I prefer things to sort of like both reflect on the past, but also put one foot forward. So I'm I'm interested to know what you guys think of this. Um, I'll jump in. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think you did a really good job of kind of summarizing, uh, why, uh, the, the artist is, I think we'd all agree is an, is an overrated movie is really for me that winning best picture did this movie no favors because it's, it is a charming, perfectly nice, enjoyable movie. And I get why it was a big thing when it, um, it premiered at Cannes that year and then just, rode that wave all the way, you know, into the fall season and then got a, a, a late, uh, you know, award season push that year. It was also, um, I think a kind of a weaker year in terms of nominations. Um, but regardless to me, I, I, I would, um, it might be an odd comparison, but another movie I think of that didn't win best picture, but it was done no favors by being nominated. Um, two movies actually, I would say is Juno and little miss sunshine, mm. which are, um, Two movies that I think are perfectly fine. I think so, and sometimes uh, there are moments where they're very good. And um, yet they got a sort of, you know, they got a certain amount of momentum when it comes to the Oscars. And um, the fact that they all, all of those films um, and the artist being the most because it won Best Picture, they were just, they, they didn't, they're, they're not the kind of film that I would think like is deserving of that award. And then the fact that it does win it kind of just, um, it like sets it up as a target for, in a way it's a target for, you know, I guess critics or, you know, others like us that are just, you know, obsessing and trying to see more movies, seeing more movies in a year that it becomes a little bit more of, um, it, it just doesn't, it does the movie no favors ultimately winning best picture. So that's where I stand. It's like a, it's a perfectly enjoyable movie. I think it's and, a really, and in this case, I think it was like maybe two or three months before the backlash started. I mean, th- this mm. movie fell off the, uh, the kind of pop culture focus, like 
faster than any other Best Picture winner that I can even think of. I mean, within a couple of months, it was out on Netflix and it was kind of forgotten upon. And the uh, the people who were given, you know, uh, Jean Dujardin and uh, Bernice Bejo and uh, while well, she's still like having she's she's having a really good career in European cinema for sure. Mm-hmm. And my, my, Michelle uh, has an avicious and I'm fucking up his name, even though I speak a little bit of French. Um, uh, he his his follow-up film barely got a release and yeah. nobody even like the there wasn't yeah there, there wasn't any like major advertising push towards from the director of the artist best picture winner blah blah like this movie basically just fell off the map as as soon as people were like ah it's kind of cute and refreshing and it just came down and in in my in my case i had the pretty much the same kind of um reaction to it uh after all the hype uh i finally went and saw it like a good month or two in, into its release and uh, maybe because of the hype, I was like, I just came out of it a little bit underwhelmed, but I could see why people would find it uh, refreshing and cute, especially the, um, uh, it had a, it found a very accessible way to sell the the gimmick of having it be in, you know, black and white academy ratio, silent with inner titles, uh, which is like, if anybody tries that, that's usually in the realm of like, deep deep art house cinema uh so i was kind of impressed by that it found a way to just like bring together this like very simple and predictable melodramatic story and tie it around i mean this if this film was shot in a regular you know uh widescreen color sound like a period piece about the the move from um uh silent cinema to talkies like it wouldn't have gotten i don't think any attention uh because the gimmick was basically what it had i mean wh- when you look at the story what do you really have it's just uh, uh an all si- it's it's basically like taking the plot of singing in the rain and stripping it even further from uh much depth and just presenting just the story beats of you know let's let's figure out like um let's take the story of uh, a big matinee idol like a big uh genre, genre superstar at the time refusing to make the move into talkies which the story is kind of weak the screenplay is kind of weak in a way that doesn't truly explain why he's so dead set on not even trying the talkies or why he's you know because i mean the the inspiration was that there were a lot of big stars and big actors at the time who couldn't make the transition into talkies but pretty much all of them at least tried like they were like I need a career. They were like, yeah, I guess this is the way with the future. I need to go out and do this. And sometimes, in some cases, like, um, I forgot his name, but there was a big uh, male star who always co-starred alongside, like, Greta Garbo. He tried to make it, make the move into the talkies, and he had this, like, you know, some, sometimes, like, these stars had the looks, but they had, like, goofy voices, or they had, you know... Or people found out that they were foreigners, like they had like thick accents sometimes, and you know stuff like that. Sometimes pulled them, you know, from becoming from making the transition into talkies. A study on such a story uh, could have been interesting, but the the way that he, um, uh, the way that it's done here is just like this very straightforward, like predictable melodrama about, you know, the the man who's the big star, you know. Uh, loses popularity the woman who's an up-and-coming star becomes the big star and then eventually they kind of uh meet and it's just like every single story beat in there is is utterly predictable and i feel like without the gimmick and without the um you know i think baroness bello is uh 
is very charming in this movie. Uh, I really love watching her. Mm-hmm. I would agree with Ryan a little bit about Jean de Jardin, although I think the first 30 minutes or so, I think the character was supposed to be like kind of mugging, like he's because we're supposed to get the feeling that uh, he is kind of like a self-centered kind of showman showmanship like kind of idiot in in a way but i don't think it truly works and i can see why it can turn some people off like like ryan because i think the director is too enamored with that character to 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 let us like really look at him as kind of like oh he's like a he's like a narcissistic asshole i think he's supposed to be also charming during the first section of the film as well so that kind of sends mixed messages so yeah, I, I I find this movie charming, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, the sec- watching it the second time around without an audience that was just like, because uh, the whole point of the movie is to also like to have to to have that nostalgia for like the time when people would get into like these big theaters and they would laugh and they would scream and it was just like this communal experience. And watching this movie in a theater uh, where people were just like laughing and having a good time and feeling like you're almost transported into the past because you're watching a silent movie, a brand new silent movie in a theater full of people who are laughing and having a good time. So that was fun. That was part of the charm of it. But watching this movie for the second time alone at home from a TV screen, like half of that charm is automatically gone anyway. And also uh, just kind of a second look at this film being so kind of predictable and flat. Like I was just, you know, I was just playing bored really. Yeah. I would agree. And you bring up a good point about it being such a bare bones screenplay because a, a good story will tell itself in sort of whatever form that you do. And and you're right, without the, the gimmick of this being a silent movie, without it being that format, it would it wouldn't play well. Like, as you said, as a talking movie. Um, and, and also, I do understand that the first half hour is deliberate with the character. It just it just bothers me. And it also bothered me that. I felt an even better movie touching on this idea came out and was nominated for best picture that very same year, mm, which was Hugo. Hugo. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And I was just like, Oh, oh yeah. Why, if, why is if, this one not yeah. connecting? And yep. this one seems to be beloved, but it's again, it's that it's that nostalgia. It's that, Oh, we haven't had a picture like this. And, and you know, Hugo also six, deals with someone, a character who was basically, whose life was kind of destroyed by yeah, the move into, yeah. move into talkies. And it does it in a so much more, Kind of, I don't want to imply that um, the director of the artist, um, I'm just going to call him that from now on because I don't want to fuck up his name again. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to, like, he, he's obviously a lover of movies. And oh, yeah. uh, if you want, like, some recommendations, some underrated recommendations from the same team, uh, go watch the OSS 117 movies, which mm-hmm. are kind of like um, Austin Power style spy spoofs. Uh, uh, where um, like they they spoof like the '60s style um, uh, like James Bond type movies with this like you know uh, Jean Dujardin plays this agent who's like who's a total complete asshole and who just like bungles everything up and he's um, and the tone of it is somewhere between like it's not as innocent as Austin Powers and the the character is obviously supposed to be seen as a dick so it's somewhere between like Austin Powers and Archer. So I'm on board that. Yeah, those movies are funny. Like <laughs> they, they, are. they they are actually funny. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of those. Well, I they're have. not uh, burdened. They're not burdened with any expectations that come with a sort of no, like, no. runaway just awards thing. You know, they're goofy comedies, but they get the tone right. The tone of the '60s, like gaudy, just over the top kind of uh, aesthetic, uh, which I think is really interesting. Cheap aesthetic, like it's 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 cool. Yeah, no, I th- and I think that's really interesting in comparison to 
that film we referenced, The Search, the one that um, Hazena Vicious, uh, I'm just going to murder his name, what the hell, uh, that he put out that just kind of came and went. I mean, it, that was at the Cannes Film Festival a couple years ago, 2014, mm-hmm. and yeah, barely got a release. And that movie, um, by all the review, you know, like um, our critic, I think it was Ollie Littleton from the playlist wrote wrote the review for that one. I mean, he he did the movie no favors in his review because he thought it was terrible. And by and large, that was kind of the way people saw that movie. And it was apparently very straight faced, um, very um, not so much melodramatic, but like trying to be an issues movie, you know, and really deal with something be important. And that is interesting to see after you see you know, the, the, the artist winning the awards it did and being taken seriously, maybe then more, it should, maybe then it more than it should have, like we're trying to say mm-hmm. is you just see like maybe how a director can change the, what maybe he's best at. And I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I haven't seen the search, but I wouldn't knock Hazenovicious for trying to evolve, trying to do something different, but it did seem like maybe a case, um, of maybe he started to take himself too seriously. You know, you could see how that could be the inevitable fallout from something that they never could have planned the artist to have caught the, the, the public's attention or the audience's attention, the way it did. Yeah, to them, they were making this like cute little niche movie. Yeah, and then the, yeah. the wine, it blew up during the festivals and the Weinsteins were just like, okay, this is going to be the next, you know, they pushed the yep. marketing really hard. And then, yeah, I think you're right. It's like the winning the best picture didn't really do them many favors especially uh when it comes to uh the director because like i mean it's 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 insane how much this movie just how fast this movie got forgotten when compared to other like best picture winners because uh like this guy's next like the search came out in 2014 and you would think that's only you know that's only three years after the artist what other movie can you possibly think of like think of like braveheart or um you know the next movie that Mel Gibson came, you know, uh, with Passion of the Christ. It was like from director of Braveheart, from the right. They you know, advertise like, like, that. They yeah. always advertise that. And when the search came out in 2014, it just came and went because yeah. people must have done some like focus grouping or something and realized that no one even remembers the artist anymore. Mm-hmm. Which I think maybe if it was a niche little, um, it just stayed like a niche little indie movie. It would have found this like little little mini cult of people who are like really into nostalgia and silent melodramas or something mm-hmm. like I could totally see people who are really into like films like Sunrise. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or uh, uh, like uh, Ron, Ron Stroheim uh, films like um, uh, Greed, Greed or something, mm-hmm. you know, like to be like really into, and, and people who are, of course, into like like singing in the rain or something like that would, would be really into this. But um, totally the, the boost that it got kind of made it made people go like, oh, this is supposed to be a masterpiece. And then when they found out that it really isn't, people were like, oh, fuck it then. This is stupid. And then that's when the backlash begins, like predictably yeah, um, in a way. Yeah, and it's weird in comparison to our underrated movie how like time quickly forgot the artist or, you know, at least the argument we're making is like it, it didn't take long for it to sort of, you know, fade into the, you know, pop culture non-memory. Like we just don't really talk about the artist. And, and time, time will remember Metnick, goddammit. Exactly. We'll make it happen. Where I think that's that's something we can at least, you know, maybe we'll contribute to is is Matinee is this movie that was never really given much of a shot, you know, reading about it. And it's it's as charming and full of cinematic like love. And, you know, it's just got that love for movies in its bones. Uh, it's got that charm to it, too. But yet it didn't catch on at its time. It just sort of 
um, sadly came and went, but hopefully it can live on like time. I think has already been kinder to matinee. It's had more time, but um, I just think what, what's going to happen to the artist as decades go by, it's just going to continue to be like only known as a best picture winner. And then that will make it, you know, that will skew people's opinions of it when they do visit the film, if they do. But matinee is a movie that doesn't have any of that baggage and yet is, so so charming, you know, it's similarly charming, but also to me, like just a fuller meal and uh, such a such a joy to watch, frankly. You see, the people come into your cave with a 200 year old carpet. The guy tears your ticket in half. It's too late to turn back now. Water fountains all booby trapped and ready. The stuff laid out on the candy counter. Then you come over here to where it's dark. It could be anything in there. And you say, here I am. What have you got for me? Well, let's let's, let's get to the guy who, who picked it. I mean, um, Ryan, why'd you pick Matinee as your underrated? Uh, well, before we get into it, uh, Shout Factory, Scream Factory, if you're listening, please put out a yes. Blu-ray of this movie. Like, I know we I talked about I that. I saw somewhere Spurgo. that Arrow, Arrow might release it. I saw. God, I feel I like I saw so. somewhere, this, but this then like, the I worst, can't find it. This is one of the worst DVDs that I own. Like, it looks like garbage. That's like, sad. Yeah. It's so bad. It needs to be it cleaned needs a good, up. Good, good. I should say, um, I ha- if you have cable, as far as I know, definitely if you have cable and you have a Stars subscription, you can actually stream it on Stars uh, app right now, and that's how I watched it. And it was actually a pretty. It was on HD. Yeah, it was an HD stream, and that's it looked pretty good. Yeah, it was. It was. It had to be better than what Ryan's describing uh, for the DVD. That's that's so sad, but it, you can at least see it that way. I was able to. Good. That's good to know for people who haven't seen it, who should go see it after listening to this episode. Mat- Matinee but... needs a good like uh retrospective uh release like yeah, a good sure. hd release Ab- for sure absolutely but the reason i picked it is i i've been thinking about this movie uh a lot lately uh especially in regards to this summer and i i think we've all had this discussion at one point or another of just just how lackluster the summer has been mm-hmm. for for movie going and, and i've been thinking a lot about that that speech that john goodman gives about like passing through the theater and going through the 200 year old carpet and you don't know what's behind that door and and anything can happen and it's like that's so poignant and like exciting and like why it's poetic I, like, isn't it that that whole yeah, scene like it's my absolutely. favorite scene in the movie where he um john goodman's stuff is uh john goodman's basically like a, a william castle type character who is like a um there was this whole thing in the in the 50s especially when it came to like b monster movies or horror movies of showmanship like these films would like go on the road show and they would like do like william castle especially would do like weird stuff like would put a buzzer in the seat like that's 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 from a real story of like a movie called the tingler whenever the monster would show up it would just like your seat would buzz or the uh house on haunted hill like when the skeleton would show up there would be like skeletons on the on wires just like riding up and down and like you know funny you know goofy shit like that and he's a he's such a fascinating he plays such a fascinating character who's just like who's basically a a man child but in a really good way like he's a he's a guy who's like never lost his sense of like childhood wonderment and understands that like there's a like this is basically my favorite movie about uh maybe not my favorite movie about movies but definitely my favorite movie about genre the importance of genre filmmaking that that it it shouldn't be put down that it shouldn't be just like thought of as just like ah oh, silly horror movie stuff or sci-fi stuff or whatever you want to think of like the stuff that requires like this high 
um concept imagination and things like that and yeah that's that that's my favorite scene in the film where he starts to talk about like look the 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 desire for um storytelling the the desire to set tell scary stories so that after the story is told we realize that we're uh we're safe again like that that feeling of relief like you cover your eyes and you get scared and then you're like oh it was just a story we're fine again like it's just like such a part of like the human uh nature and that that this whole this beautiful poetic scene where he you know uh, talks about like the caveman they used to like uh get chased by the mammoth and then he goes he tells the story of the caveman who goes to his cave and like does the drawing and then he's like like, oh maybe i'll like make the tusks bigger and the teeth bigger and may turn him into a monster and you know it's just like it just shows that that kind of like how far back uh that kind of storytelling goes and um yeah and then like like ryan you said like it moves into that other uh scene where he talks about like and and Joe Dante shoots it so beautifully that with this beautiful like tracking shot, that beautiful the POV shot. Yeah, and, and it's, it's awesome. Like, it's beautiful. Yeah. The other thing that I you know that I've been thinking about with that scene in particular is the the character, the Gene character, also asks him, "says Why why go through this trouble? Why um, you know put the buzzers in the seats? Why do the effects?" And he's like, "There's a lot of competition." He's like, "There's too much competition for like your attention," and I feel like that is so like timeless and relevant to today. Like I think that um, I know Eric, you've talked about on your podcast that movies have suffered this year, not just because they're not up to snuff, but television has been severely hurting it. And what is there in the theater? A sign of don't pay for uh, pay TV. Like don't do pay TV. Like it's, (laughs) it's this constant struggle between television and the theater and things being on too many people's minds. Of course, this being set during the Cuban missile crisis, People aren't thinking about going to movies. They're thinking about their impending doom, which in this nightmare of an election year we're in, we're also sort of thinking that same thing. So I just (laughs) I've been thinking so much about this movie recently. And and that's kind of why I want to champion it as an underrated, because it's it's timeless. It's timeless. Yeah. yeah, And despite I mean, if you if you take the, you know, our love of. You know, my love of this movie, at least I can say for myself, uh, because I can completely relate to like the main kid in this movie who's like kind of a monster, like a fan of monster movies, kind of like a movie dork, like a movie geek kind of guy. And like I could totally imagine myself if I was in that position in that like early 60s, like and, you know, you always see this kid like reading monster magazines and like I would I would probably be like that kid. And uh, and he's kind of like set up in this like really interesting three dimensional way where like everybody who worked on this film was obviously that kid in the early 60s or the 50s, uh, because like he's such a well-rounded character like he's really into this like gruesome like monster gross stuff but whenever anybody brings up like real violence uh like at the beginning of the movie this one kid is just like hey you want to like go out and like shoot some stuff and he's just like he has no interest in it mm. like he's he's interested in the in the artificial the the purging like the emotional purging feeling that you get from like these kinds of stories but he's not really into like realistic depictions of violence but but apart from that i mean it's like even if you take out all this like love letter to movie stuff like it's a really uh well executed and uh study on uh how to deal with fear Mm. in a way that like how do you how do you deal with situations like that where you feel like you're basically waiting for your doom or like something horrible might happen like right around the corner and the cuban missile crisis 
theme like it just like merges so well with the uh with the whole like roadshow release of the of Mant, the movie that <laughs> half half man half ant uh, the movie that uh, the John Goodman character is like releasing—it's kind of like the same thing. They're they're both trying to get you through this ride to like hopefully get you out of it like safe, so that you would like appreciate once you get out of it, like you would appreciate life. You would feel this like relief, and that's the whole the whole point of it. So it it adds like on top of all this like movie geek love letter to 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 uh, genre filmmaking stuff. It, it's it's an, it's a really interesting story about about how people deal with um fear yeah well this movie is actually uh and this was my first view and i finally have caught up with this movie so thank you ryan again you know for you you said that in the last episode if, if it's the only thing that'll get me to watch this damn movie and i'm so glad um i did because uh, for all the reasons you guys have laid out but also to me i was kind of shocked how dense this movie is like Mm -hmm. talk about um we talked about how kind of thin and lightweight that the artist is and especially in the script i i'm blown away by all of the subplots and all of the converging plots that all everything is set up in that sort of classical script writing style but yet the movie kind of takes this flabby way to get there in the end like it's inevitable that something's going to converge all these storylines and characters um, but yet it's never obvious how it's going to happen, you know, even as it's like getting there in the end. And I was like kind of blown away by like the the script and the way that Dante really um, seemed to be clearly in love with the material so much so that he was able to really, you know, infuse the film with that personal experience of his own. Like a lot of this is, you know, I think from his personal experience, the stuff that he brings to life with it. And he talked about that. He was um, on recently on the Mark Marin podcast. Uh, Great interview. It really was. Yeah. And you got the sense that when he talked about matinee, like it's one of those movies in his career where you're like, he wishes he clicked like that's one that he feels really satisfied by, but never really caught on. And it's obviously his most personal film. Yeah. You, you just, you feel that totally. And yet that's, um, such a cool thing to re- when you realize that he didn't write the script yet he was able to it shows so much what a director ultimately being you know gives to the final product um, or can you know can really elevate already what seemed like a good script to me because like I said this movie is just like layered and it has things going on yet at its heart it doesn't just rely on cheap nostalgia it it makes me wish I lived in an era I never grew up in. And that that's one accomplishment. But I think a lot of movies like matinee, a lot of stories that rely that use nostalgia as a theme kind of only go for that. And they're like, that's enough. If we get the audience just to remember what it was like or want to exist in this time, we've done our, we've succeeded. But matinee has like so much more going on. Not least of which I got to say one of my favorite John Goodman performances that I've that I've seen. I think what a perfect role for him, right? Might might be my favorite next to Walter. Like it's hard for me to <laughs> Walter from Big Lebowski, but it's hard for me to mm-hmm. decide. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's up there for me too. And he's one of my top three favorite actors awesome. of all time. I, I love I love actors that I, that I don't know what they're gonna do, but I know it's gonna be awesome. Whatever it is that they decide to do, and that's typically what John Goodman is for me. It's like I know he's gonna be great in a movie. I just, but I don't know what he's going to bring. Yeah. He's, he's, he, he, he creates such a well-rounded character. Like he's, he is kind of a swindler, kind of a hustler. Oh yeah. But at the same time, he's not really like a con man. He just, he really loves what he's doing and he's trying to figure out ways 
to uh, get this to the audience. But the, the way that he does it is, of course, like he sweet talks everybody. He always has that like goofy grin on his face. That grin is great. He when sells he's, like, it, man. Putting on the hustle and he like sells it. Like and and he does these like wonderful things like William Castle did this as well, where like, you know, they have the nurse at the uh, like uh, also like uh, um, Kathy Moriarty. Um, oh, yeah. Is, so she, she she's one of the most underrated actresses i think of her generation i mean this woman was great in um in raging ball and oh, she yeah. was great in a lot of the films that she appears in um and i, I don't my knee. well that looks terrible yeah I mean, that, that, that's that's one of like there are some like great like running gags like that where it's like yeah they have that like whole gimmick of like oh here's a nurse you have to sign a paper just so if you have a heart attack while watching the movie out of fear you can't sue us and then like these kids always constantly think she's a real nurse yeah so they keep showing like the scrapes and bruises like there are these like little like throwaway gags in this movie that make it like re- it has this like great rewatchability mm-hmm. because you pick up on like little jokes and stuff like that like i love the little um uh little details of like for example like at the very beginning of the movie you see the trailer of for mant which is like done in the exact style of like william castle trailers which you know starts with him at the silhouette like kind of like the alfred hitchcock silhouette with the cigar and then he starts talking about like and then he just starts throwing out like all this like mumbo jumbo about like atomic like nuclear technology and there's just like great little visual gag where he talks about like Nuclear technology will one day turn man into uh, insects. All the uh, the reputable <laughs> science magazines says so. And then, like, very quickly, he just, like, he just shows, like, these, like, he just slides these, like, magazines across the frame, which look like comic books or something. But he does it in, like, half a second. Like, all the reputable magazines. And it's just, like, you can't even see it. Like, there's, like, there's, like really funny little touches like that. Um, I, think, I think one of the major differences between why the artist doesn't hold up and matinee really does as far as like uh people who might be feeling nostalgic towards uh a certain a period of cinema or a certain type of cinema i think the 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 main thing is that the artist has this unconditional look at that nostalgia like as far as the artist is concerned or, or as far as has an ambitious is concerned it kind of feels like he has this this deep love for that time period in a way that like he can't bring himself to kind of criticize maybe some of the silly parts of it. Mm. And Joe Dante and his team and the screenwriter, uh, I forgot his name right now, but but anyway, like these people are, have obviously lived through those times and they were kind of like those kids who were like into these monster movies and they knew, like they don't, it's it's not this like unconditional like nostalgia. Everything was amazing in the 60s. Everything was amazing about these monster movies. There was absolutely nothing wrong. Like they don't, they're not afraid of like mocking some of the stupid things that some of the stuff that we know now are stupid about that time period or about that, that genre of film, like about those B monster movies. Um, like Mant is kind of like, I would watch 90 minutes of Mant, like the movie within the movie <laughs> yeah. because it's so, it's such a funny parody of films like that. Yeah. Like they just like the dialogue, the framing, just the, the silly, stupid stuff is just, is, is, is great. Like the, the giant, Ant is like climbing the Empire State Building or something, and the general is just like, "Calm down, we have sugar." <laughs> and they have a giant like. It's that classic Dante thing, right? Like those throwaway lines. I feel like in our Dante appreciation episode and the one yeah. on Gremlins Two uh, was 
was rife with that. We just kept going like, yeah, and what about this? You know, like these throwaway lines that it just like, I don't know, man. It's like the added, it's the sugar of this movie. It's yeah, the exactly. Ad- yeah, like, it's- those, like those like quick visual gags that make fun of like the, the kind of gimmicks that films like that did. And apart from the, the process of oh, like, yeah. coming up with the names, like when they're, when he's at the gas station and he That's sees the brilliant. gator and he's like, gator, Gator man, man gator, manigator, woman, that manigator, like, gator like, gal, yeah, like, yeah. Just and meanwhile, I mean, coming it, up with an idea on the spot. As far as screenwriting and execution of a scene is concerned, it's like it's 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 a great one. To, it's one of those great ones to study because not only does it give you so much information about like where it's it gives you so much information about where this character's mind is stuck because at the same time while he's trying to like he's looking at this little alligator figure or whatever and he's trying to come up with like titles for his next movie or just he's, he's just like trying to come up with some kind of inspiration and meanwhile his wife is just like constantly telling him like we're broke i'm bored of this stuff and like like he's kind of like he is like the the children that he is kind of catering to with his films in a way that's just like it's it's a way for him to escape like his humdrum reality uh into into these like silly movies that he creates and he's so passionate about it that he just like brings that passion uh extracts that passion from like other people mm-hmm. yeah he it's infectious like it's, it's yeah that's it's what it's infectious I for the audience <laughs> and yeah the the characters and and i love that dynamic that happens when uh you know one of the 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 young boy characters like just befriends him and it's such an instant friendship and i think a lot of movies try to pass off things like that where it's like yeah you get it these guys are friends but like even though it happens instantly that happens in life like each time i met you guys we kind of instantly all hit it off because we had common passions and interests yeah and seeing that done so well and like so efficiently in this movie and just you know a scene like the one you guys were talking about earlier where you talked about the cave drawings of you know drawing a scary mammoth i mean that scene is great and inspirational and moving, you know, especially for movie lovers. But it also is not that far off. It reminded me in a weird way of the Werner Herzog documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. He essentially mm-hmm. makes that same argument that it was the yeah. first, it was the first, first act of cinema. Yeah. First yeah, storytellers, exactly. first cinema. Um, it's, it's uh, like I said, like matinees layered. I mean, and we're not even getting into the actual like plot that's happening in the lives of the characters within the movie. I mean, half the movie is spent on this big premiere and this big, uh, this this showing this film Mant, you know, that the the John Goodman character's there to show and drum up excitement for. But there's all these other little, you know, period details and, you know, historical elements of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But mm-hmm. none of it gets weighted down or made to feel mm-hmm. like it's self-important. It's all light. And because enjoyable. he's not he's not afraid to show it as like there's there's obviously a certain amount of affection for this time period from the people who made it because they're obviously from that time period around the time when, you know, Joe Dante, we know for sure, I don't know much about the screenwriters, but Joe Dante, we know for sure, like grew up loving uh, monster movies and Ray Harryhausen and uh, um, William Castle and all that stuff. So he's essentially like that, the main kid in the movie who's into this stuff. But he doesn't shy away from kind of pointing out some of the ugliness or some of the stupidity that was around that period as well. Like there's just like really uh, funny quick joke uh, right before the, uh, they do the, um, the duck and cover drills <laughs> where this, like this teacher is talking about like in order to have, you know, it's like a red meat, <laughs> red meat. Like you have to have bacon for breakfast and a cheeseburger for lunch. And then maybe you have pork. to have at least like, at least like four or five servings of red meat a day. If you want to have a balanced break, like, balanced yes. diet like my stuff wife like was that watching this like... with me and she is a she majored in nutrition at school oh, yeah. and she's <laughs> like putting her hands in her head just like, no 
no, that is not like little, like, little that's terrible. Little details like that, and the like the that main kid like kind of hooks up with this like this introverted little girl, introverted uh, girl from her class, who's like kind of has these like kind of uh, liberal parents, who kind of like they don't, which through her the movie doesn't shy shy from bringing up the fact that. You know, the schools were segregated uh, and, you know, the girls basically like, why can't black kids come to the school? Like, you know, mm-hmm. why, why, why do we have to make um, make the Russians look inhuman? Oh, so we can kill them easily. And all this kind of xenophobia and racism that was like around that time period, it also doesn't it doesn't shy away from stuff like that. And that's what I think if you're going to make a film like like a nostalgic throwback to a certain time period, like you can't. If you want to be honest and truthful about it, you can't really shy away from the stuff that was that's yeah. that's that's silly and kind of counterproductive either. Nearly every scene in the movie works on multiple levels. I feel like I'm I'm maybe I'm just belaboring the point, but like that's another example of it sets up that character and then it sets up another theme and something that the movie wants to deal with, you know, like about that era, criticize it and look at it, you know, honestly with our modern eyes, even the modern eyes at the, in the early nineties when this was made, but it also sets up why that boy starts to fall for this girl. It sets up their romance because he he's established as having his sort of own ideas and passions to himself. And it comes from his love of monster movies. So naturally he would be attracted to the young lady that has like a brain and like thinks for herself and, you know, Mm -hmm. has taken this, this, um, you know, her taken what her parents have given her in terms of like a structure as a childhood and like knowledge. And like, she's come up with her own ideas and is willing to speak out against what she sees as the bullshit and what everybody tends to just fall in line and do, which is duck and cover. You know, she, she fights that. And I think that's so, that's like, it's, it's a very clever introduction to the character too, as far right, as screenwriting right. is concerned, because it sets her apart immediately. We're literally ducking and covering. Yeah, <laughs> and she walks through and says, "This is bullshit. Why? Like, how the yeah, hell is this going to save you? you?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, I, I think all the like kid performances in this movie are mm. great across the board, which is never easy to do. But it's also like it's done in a very, very honest and a very. Um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? But very innocent way. Like, right. you know, like the guys are all they're into these girls, but it's not like a, like over sexualized thing. They just, you know, they they like these girls and they want to, you know, take them to the movies or do whatever. Like, it's very innocent and very just very honest. Like what young boys it, it, it say. Brings, it brings through. It, it brings through in a way that's like you, you can see yourself saying or doing these things when you're that age. Like like when everybody's when all the adults are like freaking out about like. You know, there's this great, hilarious scene where all the adults are in the grocery store and, like, two people, like, fighting over, like, shredded weed or something. And they're just, like, all the adults are, like, freaking out because they think they're going to die. And then the kids are talking about, like, well, if the missiles were coming, do you think we'd have enough time? Like, do you think this girl that I like would have sex with me? You know, <laughs> thinking we're all going to die. And I'm just like, that's exactly what we would have said. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> or the scene, the scene where Gene and Stan are, like, listening to uh, Lenny Bruce album, oh, like, very discreetly. Brilliant. And then the parents come home it's like we've all done that like we're watching or listening to something that we're not you know parents said we can't listen to or we can't watch and it's like oh shit they're home put it away which um, it, it, it transcends like time period you're it's it makes it relatable mm. like you might not right. relate to listening to lenny bruce in 1961 on an lp but you can relate to that situation and yeah that's what I, and it feeds into it. it feeds into the movies like it's not an argument it's making but uh, just another theme that it's dealing with in terms of like seeing things that are transgressive 
especially at a young age, those are life. Like they form your consciousness as a kid. You know, that's why seeing movies, it's why you want to, when you're young, you want to sneak away and get to see the horror movie or some movie that you're not allowed to see. Cause you're too young. You know, it's the, it's like the argument for why there's like, uh, it's healthy, you know, to want to see those things and you're not a freak. And I think a lot of kids can and feel like... And that's kind of John Goodman's point about exactly. like it being healthy, like yeah. that release. Yeah, and I love I love that aspect of this movie's making the argument for exploitation cinema. You know, like this is even early roots of it and why, um, you know, Mant is probably not one of those... If it were a movie in real life, it, w- it wouldn't transcend the exploitation or the mm-hmm. B-movie um, type of genre or subgenre of movies. But there are movies that do do that. And those are sometimes the, it's, it's what we've talked about before that merging of high and low. And you can get that from this, this type of movie. And it's, uh, it's cool to see something that's like, Hey, you're not a freak. If you like this stuff, you know, people might think you're weird or think you're bizarre, whatever, you know, you might think it's like telling you it's okay. You know, there's, it's perfectly healthy. And that's another thing that Dante really stressed. Uh, I remember in that Mark Marin interview is like most of those horror filmmakers are like really soft and Dante's one of them. Like they're, they're all just like regular nice guys that just happen to like weird, goofy, fun genre stuff. It's, um, it's refreshing. Yeah. yeah. And in a more general sense, he's also kind of saying that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be in such a hurry to, to let go of our, of our kind of childhood, uh, and and of our sense of childhood. Like there's this like beautiful button at the end of the movie that John Goodman says to the kid is like, you know, adults adults really don't know what the fuck they're doing either. Like, we're not really that much different than children. We're just, like, making it up as we go along. And uh, that's that's such a beautiful button on that idea of, like, you know, that's, you know, maybe don't take everything so seriously. You're kind of, like, in, in many ways, no matter how adult you get, and in many things that are so alien to you, you're kind of still struggling like a child. So um, maybe look at some things with that, with that sort of... Uh, innocence so it's it's it handles these themes it in a, in a very specific way geared towards like movie geeks like that who enjoy like the the nostalgia throwback of the the 50s monster movies and the love letter that it sends to those types of movies but it also manages to deal with these themes in a more general way in a way that it would make me also i mean also recommend it to people who might not be as into movies like this is a film that i would wholeheartedly uh, recommend to people who are movie lovers, especially lovers of genre cinema. Totally. Uh, But this is also a kind of movie, like there are movies like that where I would just only recommend to like fans of uh, genre cinema. For example, a documentary that I recently watched called Raiders. Mm. uh, It's called, yeah, Raiders, the the story of the greatest found film ever made is about these these kids who basically shot uh, a shot by shot he, they made a shot by shot remake of the first Raiders of the Lost Ark from the time they were like in fourth grade all the way to like they graduated high school or something like that and and that movie which is about like the obsession for the love of cinema that's the kind of documentary that's the kind of movie that I would recommend to people who are just like if you're Leah if you're a film lover if you're like obsessively into movies you'll get a kick out of this uh, but other people might look at it and be like are are these kids mentally ill? Like, why are they doing this? Like, I don't think they would get it. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't think they would get the idea behind why such a documentary exists, why we're, like, watching the story of these kids. Like, they'd be like, yeah, these kids are morons. Like, why would they remake a movie with, like, 
VHS cameras, uh, a movie that was already made, like shot by shot. Uh, but in the case of Matinee, like it's like I think it transcends that and all, like because it deals with all these kind of more general themes and issues in a really kind of uh, level-headed way as well. Quick shout out for just you know for pointing out little things we like about this movie too. Dick Miller and John Sayles in this yes. movie, yes. <laughs> pretty, pretty damn terrific. Um, oh yeah, and I, Naomi Watts shows up. Did yeah, you guys absolutely. see her? Yeah, yeah. She's Kevin uh, McCarthy, which is a great, cameo. great parody of like silly, yes. uh, stupid like Disney movies, like The Shaggy Dog, where every <laughs> single one of those movies was about like some character's soul entering like an animal or a inanimate object or something like that. So <laughs> right. this was like the the next like level of that, where it's like the Naomi Watts's character's uncle. His soul like go, goes into the shopping cart or something, so it's, it's like a perv. Yeah, but she's yeah, it's one of her like earliest roles, I think. Yeah, sure. I, Stephen Kevin McCarthy too is cameo as a military officer, and Mant is also pretty, totally, totally. pretty entertaining. Pretty entertaining. yeah, yeah. And this movie's just full of stuff like that. And I think Octa, you made a really good point: is that it is a movie lover's dream kind of movie, but. Really, this is just a like a really good movie that I just think anybody would enjoy because it's got a lot to take away from it. And I think there's a lot that, you know, understandably, most people just want to sort of see themselves in some way like or they, they want to find something they relate to. And I think beyond the movie nerd stuff, if that isn't something you're going to instantly relate to, there's so much more uh, in matinee. And um, I think I think that's why it. it deserves that that blu-ray release that ryan had brought up Mm -hmm. i mean that would be so great to see i'd love to see the covers that a really cool company like arrow or shout factory or scream factory would do with it um because it deserves that kind of love it was made with that kind of affection and you know yeah, I, I swear i could swear i saw like an arrow card but might have been one of those like fan made um like wishful thinking type things because oh, right uh, barnes and noble just recently had like a 50 percent off like arrow releases and i was just like i'm gonna buy matinee and i can't i can't find it can't so find it yeah well i don't we think can, they're releasing it we can hope maybe maybe we're gonna turn the tide you guys yeah, hopefully. <laughs> One I'll, can hope. That would be I'll awesome. send this to everyone and be like, just release this fucking thing on Blu-ray. <laughs> There's a German Blu-ray out um, okay. for some reason, but you know that's the only one that I could find so there's definitely the germans definitely, get it jesus there's definitely a good hd master out there there's definitely a blu-ray master out there so you know yep. it's just a matter of like getting this uh release stateside and uh, i think i think that would be great and you know talking about the blu-ray i think this is a beautiful looking film as well i think it captures definitely. like the it goes for that sepia tone of like a period nostalgia thing but it's not like a wash in that like definitely. they they definitely didn't like oversaturate it in a way that's like kind of like the uh Kind of like in a way the artist does, where it's just like they they obviously shot it on like color digital, and then just like play around with the uh, um, like turn it into black and white. But it's like there are some things in the artist that makes it look um, like they went a little bit too overboard with the mm. with the style of it to make sure that it 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 like it looks like a silent film. Yeah, uh, that can be a little bit distracting. And in in this case, this is this is a film that has like visually it has a lot of layers, and I think it's like. It, it evokes the sensibilities of those like 50s genre films whenever it tells the John Goodman story. And it kind of has this like sepia nostalgia, like kind of semi soft focus, like stand by me look when it deals with mm. the kids stories. Yeah. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's a layered film visually as well. So it could definitely benefit, I feel like, from a really nice Blu-ray release um, 
Stand by me is a really good comparison. Actually. I think that's a really um, apt, apt uh, comparison in terms of the way it looks at a similar time period with, with rose colored glasses, you know, it's nostalgic for that, but also willing to show a dark underbelly to that or a reality Mm -hmm. that wasn't as pretty when, when you actually look at the, you know, the way it was back then. Um, It's a good comparison. And both are just really well acted by kids and just fucking great movies. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And even, even going back to like, I don't know what you guys uh, think about this, but um, even uh, some subplots where it looks like maybe like, for example, maybe it looks like uh, Dante and the screenwriters kind of had that subplot about the, the other kid who's like the, the main monster lover, monster movie lover kid's best friend, has this like subplot about the girl that he likes, this blonde girl. Mm. But uh, there's this like kind of greaser type, like older greaser type who's who's kind of a criminal, who's like, who threatens him, like, you know, if you go around her again, I'll kill you or whatever. And it's like, it ha- it kind of has this like predictable arc to it. Uh, but even that kind of, that subplot is given some like, re- those characters are given some really interesting details like i love the fact that the uh the greaser kid is like a wannabe poet yeah um it's like a kerouac like, wannabe or something yeah but but he has no idea what kerouac or totally. Pete or any of those people are but because he writes in such a like raw and like unstructured way uh he apparently uh got the uh, attention of some like beatnik like beat beat poet in like new york right and this beat poet in New York like bailed him out because he thought his 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 poetry was so raw <laughs> and primitive. And it's just that's like that's like such a perfect parody of like the beat movement of like it's so unstructured, it's so raw. Totally. And meanwhile they're talking about like this moron <laughs> who's like a washed up like who's like a terrible criminal and it was like basically like a like a psychopath. Uh but yeah, it's it's like there's like these little weird details like that. Like when he kidnaps the uh, the girl at the end of the movie, he starts like imp- he he does like an impromptu read of one of his poems, right? And everybody's looking at him as like is like what the fuck? <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you guys well, think about that? Like like there's it's 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 kind of a like in other hands. I feel like that subplot would have been like okay, we need to have this so that it's not all about like love of movies. Uh, it they could have rushed it. They could have made it like very predictable. But I think they found a way to make it fresh. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And I love the payoff of the scene you're talking about where Goodman just goes, what does she see in that guy? Like he, he's just met this kid. It's a, it's a, it's just another great moment with also a great sort of, you know, exclamation point at the end of that sentence of Goodman's, you know, great line. It's just another one of those great gags in the movie. So yeah. And I think it's pretty spot on in terms of what it's satirizing and it, it, it could have been rushed in a lot of ways a lot of this movie is rushed in terms of how much it packs in, but it, the shorthand it uses is exactly how good cinematic storytelling is done. In my opinion is you got to find that shorthand to connect things. So you still make the, the connections as to why characters are doing what they're doing. And it like, I never was confused by that. Even this movie is blowing by in a hundred minutes and fits all that stuff in. It's it, to me, it's um it's the most impressive thing about the movie. Uh, if you can look at any movie objectively, like that's the thing I can sit there and be like, wow, that is just like objectively impressive um, beyond the just visceral enjoyment I had just watching the movie. Um, it feels like it takes its time, even if it is. Right, right. And, it's, and with all this stuff packed in, it still feels like it's just perfectly paced and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel overstuffed. It's Agreed. just like it gives enough time to all of these elements to converge into one very satisfying 
uh, conclusion. That would I be mean, harder to pull off, and it's harder to pull off than I think people realize. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's especially if, especially to organically converge all of these like yeah. side stories and subplots in a way that doesn't feel like it's just like thrown in there just so you would finally you know you would have a third act like, like they're all these major these... studio movies yeah that are made on that big scale. yeah especially yeah, recently yeah yeah <laughs> batman v superman <laughs> uh, anyway um i don't and, know and maybe... suicide squad as far as i've heard i still haven't seen it but... well now that we're talking about superhero movies maybe it's a good yeah. time to to wrap it up but um i guess my my last thoughts of the movie would just be like see it uh, i i Agreed. know it hasn't been seen i know a lot of dante's movies truth be told hasn't be haven't been seen Really outside of Gremlins, Gremlins Two, and I, I'd say the Burbs has probably picked up a cult following. Um, Burbs, another one sense. that's like white, you know, pretty much wildly underrated in my. In For my sure, opinion. I agree, but I, I do think Matinee, if it's not his best movie, it's sort of his like ultimate movie. You yeah. know, it's like you yeah, have like you personal. Know, yeah, it's it's kind of like the scene, and he he's always been about the love of cinema. It's like imagine that scene in Gremlins where they're all in the theater watching Snow White and singing <laughs> "Hi Ho," and that sort of like idea of community. It's like I mean, it's great in that movie, but like this is this is what that movie is about, like from head to toe. But there's always an edge. There's always a sense of yes. mischief around it, which makes it so much more fun. And you know, I mean, I'm probably asking for too much. I'd be totally fine with a bare bones Blu-ray release, but. Um, it would be amazing if a Blu-ray of this comes out that if uh, Mant is uh, – whatever they have a Mant, I know it's not like going to be feature length. But I I bet you like the, the amount of Mant that you see in the movie would probably make up to about like a 10, 15-minute short. And they probably had a lot of like deleted scenes or whatever. And it would be amazing to put together like Mant as a separate movie that you can watch because the that stuff is just brilliant. Like that, the, yeah. So, like yeah, everything from that, like the sugar bag gag to um, the dentist who turns into like half man, like his, you know, and then he starts talking about like those humans with their stupid teeth. Like it's, there's, no picnic there's... for me either. Ha <laughs> <laughs> picnic. Get it? I'm an ant. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he throws like the, the ant farm to the floor and like crashes it. And he's like, I'm the great emancipator. <laughs> like, free. Like... You're free, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> like that stuff is just gold like so i would love to see that as a separate um release agreed hope it happens all right so should we uh wrap this up what do you think guys let's do it but before we do i think you have some movies to plug for next time so i want to uh kind of plug my picks for the next episode which uh are going to be easy rider for overrated uh, we might get a little bit of uh, protest for that one. And uh, Albert Brooks uh, lost in America as underrated. Nice. Uh, which is going to, it's going to be, a, uh, you know, it's, I guess we're going to be talking about like the, the find, Finding America movies. Yeah. You know, two, 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 two movies about Finding America, uh, Finding the Real America. But I think it's going to be an interesting discussion because Lost in America is basically a film that directly references Easy Rider. And in many ways, it parodies Easy Rider. Uh, and this is uh, one of those cases where I believe that the parody is superior to the original. Nice. So that's going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Well, and, much, and those yeah. Albert Brooks, uh, it's worth saying that that film, The Lost in America, plus like six other Albert Brooks directed movies are all on Netflix. So they must have made some deal recently with with him mm-hmm. or whoever owns the rights to his movies. And I've this is just perfect because I've been catching up on a bunch of his stuff. Uh, and this is the one I've yet to watch. So I'm super excited. And uh, yeah, you yeah, can find was, it easily definitely... now, you know? 
Yeah, definitely. That was definitely one of the reasons why I, I thought it would be a good pick. Like, it will be more timely that way because of those films being available right now. And maybe we can, like, talk about some of those films as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, look look forward to that. Uh, and uh, we have our the playlist.net um podcast network still going like i uh, mentioned at the beginning of the show uh we have the playlist podcast we have adjust your tracking and of course you're listening to over under movies uh so please uh check those out on the playlist.net uh you can find our podcast on the on the podcast tab if you click on that you'll see all of our shows and also uh you can subscribe to to us on itunes uh you can um Follow us on Twitter at Over Under Movies. You can like us on Facebook uh, at uh, facebook.com slash Over Under Movies. And uh, please, uh, you know, leave us some comments. Let us know what you think. Uh, let us know how we can improve the show or, or, or if you want to just get into a discussion about the films that we talk about or even if you have uh, suggestions for overrated or underrated movies. We're always, we're always listening. Totally. Um, yeah. So uh, anyway, for now, signing off. This is uh, Octay Ege Kozak. I'm a film critic for The Playlist, DVD Talk, The Oregon Herald, and BayasParty.com. And I'm Eric McClanahan signing off. I'm podcast editor for The Playlist, and my other podcast is Adjust Your Tracking. And I'm Ryan Oliver. I'm a contributor here at ThePlaylist.net. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.